Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Sean Shu, author of The Smell of Risk, Environmental Disparities and Olfactory Aesthetics, published this year by NYU Press. Dr. Shu, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Stentor. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Okay, so um, I'm a professor of English at the University of California, Davis. I'm also affiliated with the geography graduate group here. Um, I'm also an Asian American settler scholar with asthma who, when I started writing the book, was living in Oakland um, on unceded land of the Ohlone people and you know, I've been working at Davis on unceded land of the Paduan people. Um, I've been living amid vast disparities in access to healthy air um, and amid, you know, increasingly catastrophic wildfire, um, wildfires and the smoke associated with them. I was trained in American literature, focusing mostly on the 19th century at UC Berkeley, where I wrote a dissertation on spatial scale in 19th century literary genres. Since then, my work has shifted more towards literary and cultural engagements with environmental injustice and with the ways that geographic arrangements maintain um, and produce racial inequalities. So, um, for example, recently I taught a class called Geographies of Risk, where we thought with groundbreaking work on toxics by scholars like Stacey Alimo, Rob Nixon, and Mel Chen. Um, and so reading in, you know, these scholars and in these fields of environmental humanities and racial geographies um, more broadly has really primed me, I think, to be attentive to smell as a medium of environmental risk. Um, so that's the intellectual background for the book, but 
the truth is I sort of stumbled upon this project when I was um, doing some research for a book I thought I was going to be writing about 19th century naturalist novels. Um, so books by authors like Frank Norris, Upton Sinclair, and Jack London, where urban spaces get into and transform the bodies of characters. Um, I noticed that some of the most interesting scenes where this was happening involved encounters with air, often toxic air, and that these moments also really prominently and interestingly featured the sense of smell. So I ended up like writing an article about that. And around the same time, I came across an article in a newspaper about olfactory art, um, which, and there's a whole, like there are a lot of articles like this where they kind of are tongue in cheek and sensationalistic when they talk about olfactory art, because I think that there's just a kind of discomfort around how to think about smell as a material of art. And I, I just realized that smell was this, um, and, and that olfactory art was a great form for thinking about how air gets into people's bodies and that that could be part of the same project as the naturalism chapter. So I remember kind of being on the fence between writing the book I thought I was gonna write on literary naturalism and writing a book about smell and just deciding that the smell book was gonna push me into you know engaging with different fields, different kinds of conversations. And it just seemed like it was going to be a very different kind of challenge and learning experience. So that's the route I took. And yeah, I guess there's a some kind of lesson there about serendipity in the research project and just, you know, shifting a project to follow what feels most generative. Yeah, I think that's a, the general outlines of that story are, are a pretty common one that you kind of stumble into something interesting when you thought you were going to be doing something else. And then you kind of, you know, retcon a sort of intellectual background to it because now this is the thing that you're really engaged with. Right. So in the, the introduction to your book, you have this great phrase, the capitalism's unevenly distributed atmosphere. So I think that kind of captures some of what you're, you're doing in this book. So could you elaborate on that phrase in terms of you know, what it means and how you're exploring this idea throughout the book? Yeah, so I mean, I think broadly that that term is meant to capture the atmospheric kind of aspects of environmental injustice, right? So the way that racial capitalism has kind of always involved exposing more vulnerable populations, racialized populations to um, insalubrious environments, environments that either intentionally or unintentionally um, resulted in, you know, premature deaths and various forms of debilitation, um, industrial production. So dirty industries would be one common kind of example of this, or the siting of um, things like freeways, incinerators, toxic dumps, but also urban planning, you know, architecture and ventilation in, you know, um, apartment buildings and things like this, right? So in order to expand, capitalism has always just kind of relied on this production of differential atmospheres or unevenly distributed atmospheres 
Um, and the, the kind of related term that I use to link this to smell is differential deodorization, right? So that's, that's meant to really kind of foreground how deodorization, modernization wasn't just a process of odor eradication and, you know, constantly improving hygiene, um, which is how it's often framed, but rather as a process of moving bad air and those sources of bad air that I was talking about um, around to less powerful populations, more vulnerable places, right? Um, and yeah, so differential deodorization, I think, um, helps me to get at smell in, in a way that I think centers the experiences of communities of color, um, of BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color authors and artists and critics um, in order to kind of highlight the ways that smell is experienced kind of from below, right? That they're from the populations who have not experienced deodorization as this process that has increased, you know, access to clean air and health and so forth. Yeah. And I really like the way that you're looking at both like the production of smells and the production of you know, non-smells with the, this deodorization and looking at how both of those are being done in this, this uneven or unequal kind of way. Um, and so I wanted to kind of, then the next thing I guess I'm, I want to ask is about the way that these smells or lack of smells get culturally coded because you talk about these smells aren't just like a smell isn't just like intrinsically a bad smell or a good smell. And the meanings of these smells uh, are, are generated through social processes. Great. Thanks. So, yeah, I think that smell is, it's partly really complicated and interesting to work with and difficult um, because it's always both cultural and chemical at the same time, right? So um, in looking at olfactory discourse and literature, I really am able to see how language and narrative kind of prime the way that people perceive smells, right? And can sometimes kind of push back against the idea of certain smells as, you know, dirty or foreign or unhealthy, um, but can also often reinforce those senses. Um, it's also just the case that often smells that are perceived as, you know, unhealthy don't correlate with smells that are unpleasant, right? So I think, it, you know, there's there are a lot of instances of correlation, and I think these narratives do tend to focus on smells where, you know, whether whether it's the smell itself that is damaging individuals or the smell's a sign that there are other things in the air that are a cause of damage, smell is a kind of index of risk, right? Um, it, it indicates the presence of risky air. But, but I do think that um, the uncertainty aspect of olfactory experience, the way in which um, there's that kind of lack of correlation I was talking about leads to some really interesting moments in the literature and the kind of cultural production, right? So one, one example of this would be the um, map of the smells of Chinatown that I look at at the beginning of um, chapter four, where, you know, these smells that are you know, generally viewed as toxic and experienced as toxic, such as um, 
garbage, I think uh, engine or oil like smells and things like this are juxtaposed with the smell of five spice powder, right? Or of drying fish, um, which then by association become viewed as toxic when in fact they might just be unpleasant to certain people. Um, so, so yeah, I think looking at that really, right. um, I think helps to, let's see, I think I got a little bit lost there. So I think the um, literature and art then help to kind of recode sometimes how, how we, how we experience these smells that are, you know, have been framed as um, poisonous, toxic, hazardous, um, it, to just kind of like go towards the end of that chapter, Annika Yi's work, right, in Life is Cheap, is really kind, kind of exposing visitors without prejudgment to the smells of bacteria sourced from New York's Chinatown and Koreatown, right? And I think it, it kind of creates a more contemplative environment for engaging with the smell, for inhaling it, taking it in, um, and then also for looking at um, installations that are kind of diorama-like and really quite stunning, right? One of which is uh, composed of bacterial cultures that are, you know, those very bacteria that one has just breathed in. So I think it kind of... Um, shifts how the smells of Chinatown and Koreatown bacteria might be experienced by um, gallery visitors. Yeah. Uh, so kind of jumping off from some of the stuff that you said there, you're doing a good job of like setting up my next question without realizing it uh, in some of your responses. Um, that you also talk about the way that smell is on the one hand it's really sort of visceral way that people are directly experiencing some of the the atmospheric conditions that they're being subjected to but then on the other hand you've got this downplaying of smell as being you know subjective by kind of you know scientific analysis and philosophers and so forth um and so could you talk a bit about that, that tension between the sort of visceral and the subjective uh, kind of dimensions of smell and kind of who, who pays attention to smell and takes smell seriously in these kind of scenarios? Yeah, thanks. So I think that this kind of downplaying of smell in the Western philosophical and aesthetic tradition um, I trace back to Kant, as many other scholars have, right? And I, one of the kind of uh, foundational moments for my project was realizing that the, the things that have made smell marginal within the Western kind of tradition of aesthetic thinking um, are things like subjectivity, immersivity, right, or immersiveness, um, uncertainty, being very difficult to describe, and then this kind of biochemical crossing of bodily boundaries, right? So thinking about it in terms of Stacey Alimo's concept of transcorporeality. Um, smell and breathing are a way of like constantly exchanging matter with the air around us and, you know, therefore kind of just shot through with uncertainty about what the effects of those might or might not be. So these, these all seem like really... Um, fascinating qualities of smell, especially when we think about environmental risk, right? So the different, you know, the kind of 
um, just pervasiveness of uncertainty that we negotiate every day, right? Think about like COVID or Ulrich Beck's work, right? Like just really um, generative work on risk. Society comes to mind there as well. Um, so I, I turn to, you know, authors, writers, critics who are really um, much more writing from positions that center the knowledge of people who are exposed to risk, right? So um, naturalist authors, for example, are really writing about people who are kind of down and out populations that are often framed, are often kind of like below middle class, right? Um, or people who have kind of fallen from middle class status and that process of falling. In the case of one of the novels, I talk about Vandover and the Brute. Um, what else? There's uh, people with environmental illness um, or multiple chemical sensitivity, right, um, for whom hyperosmia um, or a kind of uh, really heightened sense of smell is a common symptom, um, they use smell and olfactory knowledge in very different ways, right? So whether it's subjective or not, the fact that certain substances in the air correlate with experiences of illness, debilitation, um, and just really unpleasant embodied experiences, they're, you know, they are to be avoided, right? So, so people with environmental illness use their sense of smell, um, often their heightened sense of smell, to kind of analyze at the air around them constantly as they move through it, as, as it changes day to day. Um, smell becomes a kind of really important tool there of, well, of survival, right? And of negotiating everyday atmospheres. But on a broader community level, I think smell in, in a lot of these works, so works by um, writers of color, so I'd like uh, Edith Eaton, who I talk about in the chapter on um, what I call atmo-orientalism, or Chester Himes and um, Rudolf Fischer, African-American authors, who I talk about in the chapter about detective fiction. I, I would say that for them, smell is, among other things, has a capacity to operate as a kind of citizen science, right? And certainly for people with um, chemical sensitivity, um, that it's a kind of gathering of evidence about everyday environments that can then be used not only to kind of change how one negotiates those environments, but also to generate knowledge about the sources of those atmospheric um, particulates that are causing those kinds of responses. Um, indigenous people um, who I, I write about in chapter five, right? So I write about uh, the Samoan author, Albert Went. Um, the Kanaka Maoli or indigenous Hawaiian author, um, Haunani K. Trask, and the Potawatomi plant biologist and writer, Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, they're also very much grounded in traditions of knowledge that do not marginalize, marginalize smell, right? So traditions that take smell quite seriously as a mode of environmental like not just knowledge, but kind of reciprocal recognition, the way that um, some of the scholars I look at there, like Vanessa Watts um, and Robin and Kimmerer herself, um, talk about 
the way that like olfactory communication, interspecies olfactory communication can work, right? That, that it's a mode of kind of knowing that's a recognition of a material relationship that entails certain kinds of responsibilities. Um, so so I, I try to kind of um, follow those authors' um, kind of framings of smell in part because they really push back against traditions of deodorization, right? That not only try to expunge you know, noxious smells in um, public space, albeit only in certain public spaces, but those traditions also devalue smell as, as a kind of legitimate tool or medium of, of knowledge and of negotiating the world. Okay, so in the the course of that answer, you mentioned your chapter on Atmo Orientalism, and I'm imagining some of our listeners kind of perking up. Oh, what's that? Uh, so, uh, could you elaborate a little bit on that that term, that concept, what you mean by Atmo Orientalism? Um, yeah, and I'm sorry to just drop a you know um, randomly invented term in there, but Atmo Orientalism um, is a term that I coin to emphasize the way in which like Orientalism, right, which is we could just gloss as in part, um, let's see, a kind of like discursive and perceptual racialization of Asiatic bodies, um, right, which often gets framed in ways that are um, visual, right, or about language, the way people speak, the way they look, uh, bodily phenotypes, and things like this. Um, I, I want to focus instead, in that, or I do focus instead in that chapter on um, the racialization of Asian air, right? So thinking about Asian immigrants, not just as different bodies, but it as inhabiting a different way of kind of relating to the atmosphere. Um, so having lower standards of atmospheric hygiene. Um, Bancroft, whose first name I don't remember, um, but uh, the kind of ethnologist, um, 19th century ethnologist Bancroft suggested that a- Asiatics had like biologically different, anatomically different lungs, right? To be able to kind of survive in the kinds of like, awful air that um, they were discursively associated with, whether it was um, in kind of like conditions of like living conditions, right? So um, one of my examples of this is the San Francisco Cubic Air Ordinance, um, I think 1875, which, or sorry, not 1875, I have the date wrong, but uh, late 19th century Cubic Air Ordinance, which, uh, basically restricted the number of bodies in a living space based on the kind of like amount of cubic kind of square footage, cubic footage of air um, in, in that dwelling. Right. And it was um, pretty much like discriminatorily you enforced against the Chinese alone. Right. Even though it was violated throughout the city of San Francisco Um and Chinese were pulled out of these dwellings because, you know, the air was said to be unsafe, uh, a source of potentially um, transmissible diseases. 
and and so forth. So so this is one way of kind of really racializing Chinese immigrants as as having a kind of deviant relationship to the air, right? But I trace this discourse throughout, you know, fiction, so Fu Manchu's use of poison gases, um, representations of, you know, Chinese opium dens, and just of like Chinese dwellings more generally in, in these kind of like Chinatown tour genres, right? Or tenement tours where they go into a building and talk about the completely unbreathable air, or at least unbreathable to kind of like white visitors, right? Um, and then I trace this discourse all the way up to pretty recent things, right? So um, there was a, a series of complaints and a suit against the Sriracha sauce, the hot sauce factory um, in, I think, Century City or Culver City. I'm forgetting which. Um, but that, that, you know, again, kind of like singled out these kind of Asiatic smells as particularly toxic um, or risky. Um, I think, I mean, clearly if I had had, um, if the timing were different, I would have had quite a bit to say about COVID, right? And the racialization of Asian air that has like really been revivified um, in really aggressive terms, right? Where, you know, somebody was sprayed with Febreze air freshener, in, in public somewhere. And yeah, I mean, the kind of like anti-Asian assaults are largely, or at least like partly, um, a result of discourses mostly originating from white folks, um, including Trump, right, that associate Asian people or people who appear to be Asian with with bad and diseased air and and therefore tried to blame the pandemic on the kind of exhalations of Chinese people, right? Rather than on say the kind of like global arrangements of commodity chains and labor and environmental regulations that um, have arranged for China to be a place that is producing a lot of goods for consumption in the West, right? So we could actually look at a lot of China's dirty air. Um, And here I'm drawing on the work of my colleagues, uh, Michael Zeiser and Julie Z, um, China's dirty air as a kind of like byproduct of Western consumption, right? So I don't know if that fully answered the question. No, that was, that was great. There's a a lot of interesting stuff there and, you know, uh, you drew some of those connections to the, COVID-19 pandemic. And I think that's kind of a, that was kind of a like exercise for the reader that I was doing as I was going through the book was thinking about how you might apply some of this stuff to uh, the COVID situation. Cause there are a lot of those kinds of uh, connections between what you're working on and what we've all experienced over the last year and a half or so. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Yeah, I want to now ask about some of the materials that you're drawing on for this because you know you've referenced a whole bunch of different things that you analyze you know from novels to art installations to these personal testimonies from people uh just this really broad and kind of eclectic mix of different materials that you're looking at so how was it that you decided on using all these different things? How did you like find this stuff and and decide to bring it together into uh, the basis for this book? Um, let's see. Well, I mean, as, as I was talking about earlier, I started with the literary archive and really thinking about form, right? So aesthetic forms in which smell gets taken seriously as a mode of knowledge and as a kind of legitimate aesthetic medium, right? And within the largely deodorized tradition of canonical American literature, right? Like there's not, there are like a, like some really famous passages involving smell. So for example, the Ambergris chapter in Moby Dick, um, but there's not a whole lot of kind of like what, what you might call olfactory forms. Um, I, I really kind of singled out detective fiction or kind of crime fiction more broadly, right? Um, and literary naturalism as two forms where smell plays a really like central role, at least in many of the works. So detective fiction, I re- um, with, in that case, I'm tracing the kind of figure which isn't always a figure, right? Sometimes it's literalized of the detective's nose. The detective is kind of um, what I argue is originally a version of a bloodhound, right? Like sniffing out deviant bodies in order to kind of individualize crime and eradicate it from urban environments. So the detective is a model of, or as an agent of deodorization in that case. Um, And then the ways in which later detective fiction like the black authored works that I mentioned by Rudolf Fischer and Chester Himes really pushed back on that idea, right? By emphasizing infrastructural um, factors in kind of like bad air and in crime. So thinking about crime in infrastructural and environmental terms, right? Or the feminist uh, hard-boiled author, Sarah Paretsky in her novel, Bloodshot, um, doing something along those lines as well. And then I I kind of connect all of that um, with multiple chemical sensitivity, like writings by people with multiple chemical sensitivity through this common thread of hyperosmia, right? And of using smell to both to detect 
um, causes of environmental violence, but also like the way in which this act of um, what the critic Jesse Oak Taylor calls immersive toxicology, right? Using your own body as a toxicological tool um, really kind of transforms, intoxicates, and in many cases endangers um, the breather and the sort of detective figure. So um, that's detective fiction, literary naturalism. I've already talked about a little bit, so I won't go on too much about it, but that, that, that's a, another genre that has long been stigmatized um, for as a genre that's like tactlessly stinky, right? So um, it's just kind of like really interested in the animal senses, the animal side of the human, um, and in, in kind of relationships with the environment and with setting that um, are criticized often for detracting from the idea of human agency, right? So he, um, it's been critiqued as environmentally determinist and things like this. But I, I'd suggest partly that smell um, is, it's, it's, it has a kind of determinist tendency, but because smells effects are indeterminate and are so rife with uncertainty, I think it doesn't lead to kind of like completely closed off account. Um, and then I connect that with um, what I call neo-naturalist works that use smell to kind of think through and stage environmental justice issues, right? So um, one prime example would be Elena Maria Viramontes' um, novels, um, Under the Feet of Jesus, which is about migrant farm workers in Central California, mostly Latinx, um, living among everyday pesticide exposures, and um, their dogs came with them, which is about, again, mostly Latinx youth growing up in East Los Angeles during the peak decades of freeway construction. Right. So, that, I mean, in both those cases, I'm interested partly as, you know, someone trained in the 19th century who has become really kind of like through my teaching and research, really interested in contemporary BIPOC literature um, and also in environmental um, humanities kinds of like issues. Um, I was interested in kind of tracking formal threads that connect 19th century work with, you know, more contemporary writings um, produced in a period where, environment, where environmental justice was a kind of explicit um, movement concern and had already been kind of like largely theorized, right? So that these pre-existing formal trends could be realized in different ways. Um, the third form that I look at is um, olfactory art. And that's another one that, you know, as, as I said, has, has often been stigmatized, right? Um, or kind of like marginalized as something that couldn't possibly be serious. Um, a curator friend of mine told me that olfactory art is a curator's nightmare, right? Like trying to figure out how to display works that smell to audiences who might not appreciate, all appreciate. And, you know, some of whom may actually be put in danger by smells. Um, and then also among works of art that could be compromised in various ways by olfactory, like odorants in the air um, and trying to prevent intermingling of smells and all of this, right? So it really kind of like um, 
brought out for me how much the Western Art Museum or gallery is premised on ideas of deodorization and of kind of a discrete contemplative viewing body. Um, so olfactory art, I think, like erupts into galleries and museum environments in ways that like really just like from the get-go um, violate these assumptions and raise like really interesting questions often involving environmental risk, right? So I wanted to kind of like um, provide like a kind of theoretical basis that's environmental risk oriented um, for thinking about olfactory art. And yeah, so those are like the, the three first chapters thinking about aesthetic forms. And then the last two chapters, I wanted to really kind of center problems of racialization because, you know, there's been a lot of scholarship done already on um, smell as, as a tool and a kind of, especially olfactory discourse as a tool of racial differentiation. But I wanted to think a little bit more about like how it's happening not only on discursive levels, but also on material levels. And also to think about how BIPOC authors, um, so in the cases of those chapters, Asian diasporic authors and indigenous authors um, and artists have, how they've kind of not only critiqued those discourses, racializing discourses, but also um, attempted to kind of move beyond them, right? So the way that Anika Yi creates spaces of olfactory intimacy, where, as I was saying earlier, um, visitors or um, to use the term that I borrow from the anthropologist Tim Choi, breathers, right? So instead of viewers, the breathers of that artwork um, kind of engage in this intimacy with the bacteria that are at the heart of the exhibit um, in ways that invite a different kind of contemplation, right? So it's not a visual contemplation, but just kind of like, what is this doing to my body? What's this doing to just like the way I feel? How might there be synesthetic effects between the air that has been inhaled and the bacteria I'm looking at that emitted that air? Um, that I, I think I frame in terms of conviviality, right? So thinking about interspecies life happening already within our bodies and smell as a kind of vehicle of intimacy and not just um, kind of harm. And then in the case of um, the fifth chapter titled Decolonizing Smell, I look at um, how, so for example, with Hanani K. Trask and uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer, how they think about smell not only as, you know, the stench of colonialism, as Trask calls it, but also as um, the kind of like pungent and divine indigenous, like forms of the indigenous landscape, right? Um, Non-human forms ranging from, like some of her references are to Miley vines, to the wind, the smell of the wind, um, lizards and geological features, right? Um, so the smell of rock musk is another of her examples. Um, and, and these examples that I think like decolonize smell both by uh, providing instances of indigenous smells that gesture towards a different possible smellscape, right? A smellscape that has, has persisted despite settler colonialism's attempts to eradicate it um, and to deodorize it. Um, and yeah, I, 
I feel like there was a both and, but I'm going to skip the and there and, and move on to Robin Wall Kimmerer, um, <laughs> who right. kind of recuperates smell, or, or not quite recuperates, but just like really thinks through, um, because this knowledge has always already been there, right? Um, thinks through smell as something that, in, in the example of sweetgrass, right, calls humans to harvest the sweetgrass in particular responsible ways, ways that are aligned by um, indigenous stories about sweetgrass as the hair of Mother Earth, right? Um, so to harvest it in responsible ways that actually uh, enhance the ways that sweetgrass grows back. So it grows back stronger, right? And so smell is this kind of interspecies communicative medium that um, has kind of, I mean, I guess one could say evolved, right, between humans and sweetgrass in order to produce, you know, uh, a kind of like, not just odor, but a material of ceremony and basket weaving for, for humans, and also so that the humans could provide this kind of responsible harvesting for the sweetgrass. Um, so that's another mode of kind of decolonial thinking about smell that, um, that really struck me. All right. Well, that was great. You just like took care of several additional questions that I've been <laughs> going to ask, and you just like covered them I'm really sorry, well there. I, I went uh, too long. Oh no! Don't, don't <laughs> apologize. No, that's that's great. You you said everything that I wanted you to talk about without me having to ask. Um, but I do then want to ask about the the cover image on the book, which is kind of a. a interesting image here that we're, we're in this kind of, you know, blank white art gallery type space. And you've got a, a person dressed all in black standing on this folding ladder with their head inside this like cloud shaped thing that's hanging from the ceiling. So could you kind of explain what's going on here on, uh, on the cover and how does this, you know, capture what's in the book? Great. Um, thanks for asking about it. So this cover is, uh, I think, a really striking artwork. And I mean, in a way, it's only part of the striking artwork because it's an olfactory artwork um, by the uh, olfactory artist Peter de Cupera. Um, and it's called Smoke Cloud. And he exhibited it about a decade ago at the Havana Biennale um, in Cuba where he said that he wanted the, the smell of, or I guess I should pause and say that inside the uh, cloud, maybe I'll just describe the whole thing. So it's a kind of like dramatically lit ladder under a kind of sculpted cloud. It looks kind of cottony material suspended from the ceiling. Um, and viewers or breathers ascend the ladder one at a time, right, if they want to. And inside the cloud is the smell of um, air pollution, right? The kind of uh, kind of smell that uh, de Cupera designed to evoke the scent of air pollution, I should say. Um, and so it's, it's kind of doing a lot of things that I find really interesting, partly the kind of contrast between the visual installation and the olfactory experience, which when you're experiencing it, actually, your head is inside this cloud sculpture, so you don't really see much. Um, I also really like the way that it incorporates the breather's body into the installation, right? So the ladder with the cloud wouldn't actually look like that interesting without a body 
kind of like connecting them, um, standing on the ladder. There's also like a dramatization of risk, right? Not only in the smell of smog, but also the idea that like this heady scent might make one fall off the ladder. Um, and yeah, I, I think that it really kind of gets at the, the sort of way in which embodied experience is happening with a certain kind of opacity, right? So where the breather's head is hidden and immersed in the cloud and people looking just don't know what is going on inside that breather's head and body. Um, so then to go back to the context of exhibition, um, he wanted the smell of air pollution to evoke the particularly intense like smog and smoke that he he experienced in Havana and that he connects to um, the Cold War embargo, right? So there are all these old American clunker cars in Havana. Um, and that's the other kind of reason that I wanted to include it is it's really a reference or not just a reference, but an engagement with the transnational dynamics of American policies, right? The way that, you know, U.S. Cold War policies not only created during the Cold War, but continue to kind of like result in um, dirty air in places that we would not think had that much to do environmentally or atmospherically with the U.S. Okay, yeah, that's that's a, a sort of step up from some of the you know really boring covers that some academic books get. They have something that's such a you know a connection to what's going on in the book, and that I guess it's too bad they couldn't print it as a scratch and sniff, so you could get the full experience of the uh, of the installation there from the. I, I totally book. asked. But I think okay. the, the book would have cost too much. <laughs> okay. Well. All right. So to to wrap up here, we always like to end by asking what you're working on next. Uh, what kind of projects are you taking up now that this book is out? Yeah. So um, I'm doing. I mean, I'm just kind of getting started with new work, but continuing to think about ways of perceiving the atmosphere um, in sensory terms. I'm. I'm writing an essay, or I just recently completed an essay on thermoception, so the sense of temperature, as a way of sensing atmospheric disparities and focused on how Black writers and artists um, engage with connections between temperature, affect, embodied experience. And I'm really interested in temperature, again, not just as a medium of damage, right, um, something that harms bodies and results in premature deaths, um, both heat and the lack of access to, you know, shade, tree canopy, air conditioning, and so forth. Um, but I'm also interested in temperature as a mode of affect and a kind of condition of knowledge, right? So a, a sort of like thermally conditioned knowledge um, that results in, you know, different kinds of, of understandings of space and infrastructure and of climate change. Um, so one, I mean, one thing that I want to investigate in that book really is the urban heat island effect, um, right, which urban planners know all about, but which I think literary critics haven't um, really like thought about a whole lot. So I want to think about, you know, the literature, art and culture around the urban heat island effect and with a focus on um, black authored 
texts. So one one example that comes to mind immediately would be Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, right? Which he said he wanted every single um, scene to like make the viewer sweat and to evoke like the hottest day of the year. Um, the other project I'm working on, which is very much related to that, is a kind of more public-facing book um, for the Bloomsbury Object Lessons series, um, which is this great series edited by Christopher Sheberg and Ian Bogos that thinks through the kind of social and cultural implications and embeddedness of everyday objects. So I'm writing one of those on air conditioning. And the reason I'm doing that is partly that air conditioning strikes me as like, fascinating as a kind of distributed object, right? An object we rarely, you know, mostly functions in the background of our lives and we notice it when we don't have access to it, but would like access to it. Um, It's also been theorized in really powerful terms, right? So it kind of, it's a technology that like really opens onto a theory. So I'm thinking here of Peter Sloterdijk's um, theorization of air conditioning as the ways that we condition the air in order to condition life. Right. So the differentiated air is a way to condition and differentiate life, I could say. Um, And there I want to really focus on air conditioning in a framework of climate justice. Right. So, again, centering the perspectives of people who have little access to it. Um, One example would be Mohsin Hamid's moth smoke. Right. Where he says that. Pakistan's population is has one like major divide, which is between the air conditioned and the great uncooled, right? The people who experience air conditioning from the outside of buildings as actually really hot because it's just emitting heat outwards Mm -hmm. um, towards them. And also I I, I want that book to kind of um, really kind of intervene, I hope, in how, how we think about the Anthropocene by focusing on like what we could say, not just would be not just climate justice, but like, justice at the level of microclimates, right? So air conditioners as a machine for creating differentiated microclimates on a variety of scales. All right. Well, we will eagerly look forward to seeing the results of all that. That all sounds really interesting. So Dr. Shu, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Tenter. It was a pleasure. You just heard a conversation with Sean Shu, author of The Smell of Risk, Environmental Disparities and Olfactory Aesthetics, published this year by NYU Press. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.